Welcome to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl. We'll continue speaking with Michelle Vendiola, Swinomish tribal member. Shelley is a member of the Protect Mother Earth subcommittee, and Mother Earth is indeed facing many challenges. And so are we, as the human beings who live here. We are the indicator species. Shelley and I talk about the threats facing Native communities on the Pacific Coast and the ways of adapting and continuing who we all are best together. There's been a lot of trouble and strife, and part of that has been flooding, actual you know, flooding of villages and so forth, like we've seen in Alaska. And there's been you know, political challenges around that. Can you talk a little bit about what some other tribes and villages are seeing and what hardships they're facing that are actual and physical on the ground due to climate change? Yeah, so I, um, we have what's called the National Congress of American Indians, and it's a, a pretty big lobbying force um, of all uh, of the indigenous communities throughout the country. And um, Fawn Sharp is the president, and she is also a Quinault tribal member. And um, the, the tribes on the coast, you know, where her tribe is on, on the west coast, are being inundated by flooding and um, there's a, there's a lot of uh, storm surges happening, um, tsunami type situations that are occurring and, and the land is really eroding. And so they're being forced, the whole tribe, there's there's little tribes, you know, near Quinault. Um, and those tribes are looking at plans to relocate. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on Nature's Touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. Because of, you know, the um, the way that the tides are, are sort of blowing into the land and how the land is is, is then eroding, kind of like the Gwich'in and the people up in the north on the Arctic, right? That their, their land is, is being impacted as well. It's eroding, it's going into the sea, and uh, the caribou are going away. They're, they're being impacted. Same with our salmon. So it's the ecosystems that we're all connected to by the earth and the water. And the salmon swim all the way up there and come all the way back down, you know, up, up north and come all the way back down. And so if they're not making it, it impacts a lot of indigenous communities. And so um, we're, we're seeing a lot of what's happening in, in British Columbia with the, uh, there's some fish farm operations that still want to operate. So there's blockades going on up there because, you know, what happens when when those kind of fish escape is they intermingle with the wild salmon. But some people call those farm salmon uh, frankenfish. And there was a lot more of them back in the 90s, but as, as you know, our fishery folks here, commercial fishery folks, non-native fisheries and native fisheries alike started to see the impact of that wild salmon. You know, the, the fact that they could make 
the flesh of that salmon any color by injecting dye to make it look all real healthy and pink as opposed to what it would look like grayish kind of whitish flesh not very appetizing and then they started having a lot of fecal matter you know like smothering the below the sea and so it started killing off all the sea life and then there's sea lice you know on and on so when the, when that happens your whole ecosystem is impacted and so there's been a big movement to shut down those fish farms around here we had a big escape in off of cypress island so Lummi, Swinomish, all these tribes came up and they started trying to get all that farm salmon out of the water because what it does is it intermingles, like I said, and then you have another kind of species, I guess. So those are the kind of impacts that we're seeing as well as, you know, the Barard um, um, Swallow Tooth Nation up there in British Columbia. Um, they're very concerned about their waterway and it's very, very slim channel that these big oil tankers and other cargo ships go through and there's a lot of ships that go through there and it's really impacting their um, sea life and their ability to practice who they are and so they're protesting up there and uh, on top of that they have that trans mountain pipeline coming through and it's not unlike what we're seeing on the Mississippi but that pipeline happens to have oil that would feed into uh, the reservations um, Stolen land, which is called March Point, where two oil refineries are located on the north end of our reservation. And how that happened wasn't by agreement by the tribe, of course. At that time, U Ulysses Grant signed a proclamation, well, it was an executive order, that said that, oh, this is really the, he, 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 he demarked a map of the reservation and he cut off March Point, that tip that goes way out into the bay. And he claimed that that was not reservation land. And now today, you know, industry has been built on there. There's two oil refineries that have been on there for a while. And our shellfish is poisoned out there. So we know that not to go gather shellfish out there. Yeah. And so that's the circumstances. It's just on and on. I can go on, <laughs> give you a lot of different examples. But that is the reality that we're faced with. That's why we have to educate one another, work together, because it's not just impacting us anymore. That refinery is not just impacting us anymore. There's going to be like, what, more oil tankers coming through? Not a good idea. Tribes around here don't think that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the word on the street about the oil industry is where there is oil, there will be spills. Mm -hmm. I mean, that came up at Standing Rock and uh, with the Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone XL and Trans Mountain. Yep. And um, the protests that are occurring in British Columbia at Wet'suwet'en to block, you know, the, the pipeline. So, um, there's a major effort going on, you know, politically and culturally that's in the news. And I can't believe Facebook, you know, how many people are committed and working and protesting. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like a large movement. Does that surprise you that suddenly there's this presence of uh, the care and concern you're talking about in 
in a real world circumstance that's quite difficult, you know, as far as negotiating with with these companies,、mm -hmm. or the、yeah. or the regional, territorial, provincial governments, state governments.、Mm -hmm. It it's it's hopeful. It's hopeful. I, I'm I'm hoping that with that surge that things can change really. But I'm of the mindset that if we don't stop things now and change our behavior, and some people will say, "Well, we we're so addicted to oil that can never happen. That we have to take our time." But we already know that the Earth will continue heating, and the more we develop fossil fuel industry and use that、um, addiction, then we are. Pretty much sitting ducks, and I really feel that、uh, there's a lot of sweet deals that are being made, a lot of things that sound green and good and、um, renewable. But、um, the Earth, you know, I felt I feel like the Earth should have rights, and that this next generation are exerting their rights by suing the state, for example, brave young souls that are suing the state, and of course, there's a lot of legal. Uh, legal beagles that are supporting that work as well, and so that is promising. You know, when we have legal entities that are willing to defend the earth, and I'm talking about it comes from that book Earth Jurisprudence, but I'm also talking about those lobbying environmental legal lobbying groups that are really fighting hard to litigate matters.、Um, Of wrongdoing, and so that's the more extreme than sort of mediating and、um, developing strategies for mitigation. It's really, you know, a win-lose kind of situation. And I really feel that the fossil fuel industry has put us there. We're in a win-lose situation, and we can take our time and let the earth continue to warm, and、uh, and hope and pray, or we can stop our behavior like we did with. This coronavirus. I think that virus had a lot to teach us about how we might be able to adapt better and more emergent. But I don't know. Like, there's a lot of naysayers still who didn't believe that the virus even exists. Just like there's a lot of people that want to say that there is not a climate crisis. But I like what Gore was saying in、um, Inconvenient Truth. It's certainly inconvenient for a lot of people that don't want to look at it, but we need more people to be brave enough to look at it and to actually do something rather than sit on the fence and wait for someone else to do it, because it's only our future at stake. So, I'm of the mindset that it is a crisis, and we have to stop bad behavior now, and we have to start mitigating in a clear and coherent manner. So that we can all survive. Thomas Benyaka talked about this many years ago, the Hopi Survival Kit. That's what that book is. If we read that, there's some knowledge in there. Well, it's pretty amazing to be alive in these days because we have all these things that are going on, like the protests and the reclamation of. Language and identity and、um, relationship to the land and those kinds of things and the public protests, <clears throat> but at the same time, just down the road, you have 121 degree temperatures in British Columbia, 
and hold towns bursting into flame. Yep. And the, the relationships seem to be expressible scientifically that in terms of probability. Um, I'm just hoping that tribes aren't divided by, you know, what would be the best strategy moving forward. I, I, my hope and my prayer is that we, um, as in the indicator species, will take action for the benefit of not only the future, but those indigenous people that are south of us that are being impacted now because of our convenient massive communities have been, been impacted by the oil industry. Look at Nigeria. Uh, 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 one of the elders there right. went on was sharing a story about that, how they have these huge oil operations that, that light up the skyline. It's changed their way of life. And how it's changed their way of life is that they used to be able to go around in these villages as a way of resolving conflict. They used to be able to go around and um, knock at the door and and sing um, these ancient songs um, by way of spotlighting a wrongdoing and going to that that person that did the wrongdoing to their relatives' homes and doing this. And it's a and that and then it was a, a peacemaking process. But when they built those huge shell oil operations there um, next to these villages uh, if you see any kind of oil refinery you'll see that they have lights on 24 7 they never go off and so to them in nigeria it was like it was daylight all the time it's like when you live in alaska and it stays daylight all, it was like that so that ritual and that way of knowing and being in terms of your values around how you treat a wrongdoing that was no longer. They couldn't do that because it never got dark. It had to be in the cloak of darkness. And so it changes a way of life because when you can't go out in the cloak of darkness and practice a ritual around a wrongdoing and have some kind of resolve by that person's family, then you are having to modify a way of life and that dispute resolution strategy goes away. You have to do something else. And so it changes a culture's behavior and it changes the culture's food source, even when you have these kind of things happening. And here we are in the land of the privilege and we can take our time maybe, and we can wait and see what's right. But while, you know, indigenous people in another continent or south of us, or even north on the Arctic are being impacted now. Their livelihoods, their 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 homelands are going in the water. But we can, you know, like, so I'm of the mindset that we have to change our behavior now and we have to lock arms together and stop pretending like we can't do it. Right. Well, you know, activists were killed in Nigeria, right? I forgot the gentleman's name that was very famous and, you know, was uh, mm -hmm. met a very untimely and, and about that time, I was reading also about Ecuador mm -hmm. and uh, the Ashwar people and the Warani people and how their lands had been polluted with oil and uh, mm -hmm. that rivers had been polluted and so forth. And those were places for, you know, sustenance and food, food supply and right. uh, community well-being. And 
Um, there's a certain amount of that in Alaska, but there's a number of problems in Alaska in the villages, and one of them is sewage. Mm -hmm. There's no sewage system. There's no uh, pollution control sometimes, or, you know, if, if uh, pollution is released into a river or a stream, it's not necessarily uh, addressed. It can be mitigated in other ways rather than, say, stopped or removed or those kinds of things. And so mm -hmm. from the research on this series of podcasts, it's been appalling to me how the condition, conditions seem to be deteriorating in the Bering Sea villages. And, mm -hmm. and traditional hunting and uh, fishing get more difficult. The ice pack is melting. Uh, mm -hmm. The ice pack protects the shoreline from erosion and destruction. And, and the permafrost, mm -hmm. you know, our industrial facilities, even the oil facilities are, uh, you know, leaning and spilling oil and these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like that's another part of the crisis. But from a human rights perspective, it's appalling. Mm -hmm. Well, there's this other movement happening today, and um, it, it's really heartening that young people are taking to the streets, and there is a resurgence of movement happening. Um, Standing Rock being one of the um, drivers, I think, uh, to show people that, hey, we can do this. You can come and help. You, you know, it's going to be hard, perhaps, but you know, standing together, we're stronger in numbers. And the fact of the matter is that that's how change happens over time. You know, Martin Luther King and all of the marches and protests he did. And then, you know, Billy Frank Jr. and all the fishing wars that were happening. It's just another iteration. And mm -hmm. what's causing alarm, I think, is because of the fires and is because people are talking about the salmon going away and people are getting educated and here in the state of Washington, some schools are actually, you know, trying their best to partner with tribes and find out what the issues are and find out how can we have you come and speak in our science class or how can you, we have you come and talk to our, our young people about this climate issue or the cultural ways of knowing and being and how we should behave in the world. And it's with that kind of energy, it's with that kind of education that we can pull together. We are also um, lifting on a, a term that comes from a story of pushing up the sky and it's and the term is yahao in, in the shoot seed, it's yahao. And yahao means to lift together. And so we're bringing those, those kind of words out in our language to show the way forward because that that story that comes with that word that where that word is highlighted is about people who are different and speak different languages um, walking around in a world where the sky was too low and bumping their heads on it but they had no way to communicate with one another because they all spoke different languages but then one day the one of the elders came and said in the elders council they called to seek advice on what to do so we'll, we'll 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 have a word it'll be a how to proceed forward together we'll say that word at a certain time at a certain place and we'll all lift together our shaved poles from those long time ago these to be really tall trees 
we'll, we'll shave them into poles and then we'll lift together. And that's that yahow. And that's kind of example of the story I was talking about earlier, where there's a lot of wisdom there. And you don't have to overthink it. It's pretty practical, pretty practical, how we survive on the earth together. And that's what we're hoping to teach the young generation now, like how to pick some of that knowledge up because they're going to have to work together. It's beyond our tribe's means to mitigate this situation, quite honestly. We mm -hmm. don't have a choice. <clears throat> we have a group in New York City that I've been participating in, uh, which is at City University of New York and Hunter College. And some lovely people, educators, who are very concerned about the environment. It's the Par Department of Environmental Science. And so we bring up these issues and I tell some of these stories. And this broadcast, this podcast will be seen there. But one of the comments from a founder that I heard yesterday was, in New York, people aren't thinking about this at all. Hmm. And yet, I mean, New York City. Brooklyn, perhaps that person meant. I'm not thinking about upstate New York and the Haudenosaunee and the tribal communities where there is, you know, that awareness. But in our ordinary lives, in our big cities, in our media centers, the number one media center of the United States, right? New York City. Um, there's sometimes a disconnect between people's lives and lives that are connected to the earth mm -hmm. not always but sometimes mm -hmm. and it's prevalent mm -hmm. so i think some of the stories that you've provided are a good way to um to educate you know in a heartfelt way is there anything else that you could say or that you would like to communicate to our big city brothers and sisters to encourage them well, when you say that, I think of back in the um, 90s, I met this um, elder from Greenland. Was it Greenland? And um, he was from a village up there. And he was going around the, the globe, he was going around the earth, and he was talking about this prophecy. And what he said was that um, one day he's going to be you know, he, that culture he comes from is canoe culture also, like us. You know, we, we're surrounded by water here. We're in the Pacific Northwest. It's, mm -hmm. We're on the coast. And they, they're experiencing it more immediate. And he was saying that, you know, one day he, he would be paddling down Fifth Avenue in New York. He would paddling down Fifth Avenue. And it would be like five stories high. And, and, and so I think that that's a real simplified version or um, way of thinking about what's to come. And we see a lot of uh, earthquakes happening. We see, um, you know, the flooding that's happening and they're getting more intense. And when we talk about power, uh, it's not political. When we talk about power, it's not this, this grid that provides our energy when we talk about power, it really is um, the water and the wind and the waves and the thunder and the lightning. That's power. So when I talk about the earth, 
you know, purging because she has a fever. That's what I'm talking about. Our dilemma is, will we be able to handle that purge together? And what does that look like, really? Can we minimize it? That's a big question mark. It depends on herd community mentality, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, a few years ago, we both probably knew about or participated in something pretty wonderful that happened on the Olympic Peninsula. And that was, you know, the restoration of the Elwha River, the beginning of the restoration anyway, which had been dammed, you know, 100 years ago. And mm -hmm. it was a tribal river with villages upstream and um, hunting and fishing upstream. And it cut off the food supply for 100 years. So to my mind, that was a genocidal act. Yes. And, and that was what drew me to Washington and to Coast Salish peoples. And a lot of learning that has taken place uh, for me personally. But in working on that and making a film, it occurred to me that this idea of respecting the natural processes and letting nature alone to do what nature does best, and even removing infrastructure, which was said to be impossible at the time, politically impossible. And you know, how could you move, remove all that concrete? It's a very similar argument to the oil industry question. Mm -hmm. you know, do those refineries need to be there? And do we need to um, continue to use and pollute you know, to the degree you know, uh, that has been occurring? Um, did you feel that that was a signpost or a way forward in a sense? Mm -hmm. or toward learning and what can what can we learn i mean internationally really it's never been done anywhere else mm -hmm. that's the largest ecosystem restoration project that's actually been completed in mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. yeah well, it hasn't been um, completed but it's been you know the everglades was not you know the everglades has other problems and that was you know a similar situation of a necessary restoration but the, those dams are out on the elwa and the fish are returning up above where the dams used to be and mm -hmm. there were 11 stocks of anadromous fish in that river. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would have to say that um, that would be a benefit to all of us if we got the three dams off the Skagit and all rivers across the world. It would just be a little inconvenient, you know, with regard to electricity. But, you know, when we say that we, we have ideas that support green renewable energy, really, green renewable energy like solar, perhaps wind, growing hemp, uh, you know, those kind of ideas that more could be um, invested in, in that kind of strategy and um, that we take a real serious look at what it means to keep extracting fossil fuel, which is the number one, one of the number one drivers, transportation, that's what I'm talking about one of the number one drivers. And so when we say we need to change our behavior, we already know the science tells us the earth is going to keep warming, even if we stopped. So thinking practical would be helpful as a human species, but we like to like compartmentalize, break things down, separate, silo, and then pretty soon everyone's in conflict just like that story I told.
we have to stop doing that. We stop, have to stop putting price tags on minute things that separate us. And we have to stop dangling that big carrot and saying, we know that you guys are fighting for bones anyway, that you're just barely surviving and able to, you know, practice who you are. And there's a lot of communities in the South, I must say, that can't even do that, right? At least we, we kind of, you know, are at some tables. Be nice to have, be at the state table more uh, in a more respectful and honorable way. But um, I'm just saying, you know, there's a difference between working with the federal government and the state government. And then there's the county and then all of that, right? Very confusing, very schizophrenic. So when we talk about what is the way forward, it's real practical. We hang on to those ancient knowledges and we bring our language back that connects us to our values of how we treat one another. Well, there are a lot of laws that exist that are commonly not followed, and some are very important laws, like the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, which mm -hmm. doesn't really have much standing with the judges in the courts. Mm -hmm. And uh, although it's a, a principal law that was enacted in 1965, actually by Richard Nixon, of all people, um, along with the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, because of the political awareness that was growing at that time, but also um, ERFA, you know, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, right. uh, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Repatriation Act, mm -hmm. and, and several more that are commonly ignored. And one of the um, pieces of evidence of that ignorance has been a failure to consult with tribes on industrial and governmental initiatives. And, and uh, you know, we, I wrote something once about confusing contact with call, consultation, you know, that often it goes in the, you know, the public records that, you know, contact has been made and, you know, and, and they pass that off as consultation, even if no one answered the phone. You know, if they, if they call up on the phone and no one answered, they've attempted contact, right? So that, that can be used, you know, to satisfy, um, certain requirements as far as industrial projects being built. And then there's the question of consent, you know, contact as opposed to consent. So consent being, you know, did you really talk to people and are they in agreement and are we working together? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is where we're at today as uh, Swinomish and other tribes in this um, region, which is where the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indian happens in this Western, Northwestern region of the country. And um, there's a lot of, to be said about consent versus consultation. And I think we are far beyond consultation because of what you just said. So yeah, so tribes are looking at, um, just like everyone looks at, oh, well, did you do an environmental impact assessment before you started building. We see a lot of that not happening. So we're still in the same boat pretty much. And we're just asking for now more. Like when we rolled out the since time immemorial curriculum here in Washington State. So that was through the Department of well, it's now called the Office of Native Education, right? And a guy by the name of Denny Hurtado, a former chairman at Skokomish, he was part of this um, force uh, he was working for 
the Office of Native Education and really wanting to get the Since Time Immemorial curriculum into the schools. So the school students would learn about their neighbors, the natives, in whatever, you know, county or town they lived in. If there was in if they were in the vicinity of natives, they should learn about them. That's all. That's the Since Time Immemorial curriculum. And at the time that it was rolled out many years ago, it was just strongly encouraged that school districts are strongly encouraged to pick up this curriculum and the vast majority didn't. This is a state law. And so Senator John McCoy comes around up to Lalup and he puts in mandatory instead of strongly encouraged. So it's like that. So more school districts are beginning to do it, but the majority are not yet. They haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done still. <laughs> Just because we have a law doesn't mean that people are going to follow it. <laughs> what right. And that's kind of weird, you know, that we have a law in the books of the United States of America and they're ignored continuously mm -hmm. over and over and over again. So um you know we discussed um we discussed my film in southern california on the uh the fast tracking of large solar in mm -hmm. the deserts and how you know that was thought of and supported by groups like the national resources defense council and the sierra club to some degree as a green energy solution um, but why aren't those solar panels on the rooftops where, you know, they're used and why are there transmission lines for 200 miles built across native lands and villages and cremations, you know, destroying ecosystems and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, that's not green. Mm -mm. And uh, the carbon footprint involved in shipping steel products and solar panels from China is not green. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think gradually I saw a softening, you know, on behalf of the environmental, typical environmental groups toward, you know, taking into account, you know, uh, native views and taking into account the fact that everything, everything that's gold is not green, or mm -hmm. everything that's green is not gold, or, mm -hmm. you know what I'm trying to say, everything that's green is not sustainable. Yeah, that's right. Well, here, here's one thing um, that I, a golden nugget, I, I guess you could say that I want to leave. Um, and that is that we have to remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of a lot of activists, leaders, um, strategists, cultural knowledge keepers. And back in the early 90s, there was this um, document that was drafted and people like to conven conveniently forget or invent something new, but it was called the... Um, Principles of Environmental Justice, mm -hmm. early 90s, down in Rio. That's when it was created. And it wasn't created with the mainstream environmentalists like the Sierra Clubs. It wasn't, they weren't at the table. The people of color, indigenous people had to create their own forum because they were kind of locked out of that when, you know, that whole Rio situation happened. And so I just bringing it up because it's a tool that I use today. It's called the Principles of Environmental Justice. Then 20 years later, in 2000, um, 
early 2000, I went into Washington, D.C. at the second People of Color and Indigenous People Environmental Summit, Leadership Summit, Environmental Leadership Summit. So, you know, there were hundreds of people there, you know, hundreds of people in Washington, D.C., people of color, Native people. And uh, I must say that there was another document that our working group, we, there were three working groups, ours was one, and ours was to produce what's called the principles of working together. So I had the honor to facilitate that, to co-facilitate that with, so I was with the Indigenous Environmental Network and the Asian Pacific Environmental Network was the partner organization that helped facilitate that conversation. And we did come out with a working document and we delivered. The two other work groups did not, but we did. And there is, if you Google search both of those documents, the principles of working together in the preamble is the preamble for the principles of environmental justice. So the work just continues. And maybe we need to do another iteration of that. I don't know. But it really spells out very clearly that the grassroots folks, the most disenfranchised, those are that are on the front line of those communities that you just talked about, that that we speak for ourselves. And there's clear guidelines of what that means. And and there's even, you know, an, a section that is about decision making. So it's really wonderful, you know, I don't like to overthink things too much. Yep. I don't like to reinvent things unless, you know, I can improve upon them or I can modify them for a community because I'm a facilitator. I facilitate a lot of groups around these kind of issues. But I just have to say that, you know, the more transparent we are and the more uh, relationship building that can happen, that is creating understanding between one another, the more, the better position we will be in to live together. But we have to pay attention to these women what the women are saying and we have to be paying attention to what the earth is is showing us especially following the coronavirus pandemic situation we we are in the we are in the throes of that right now but i'm just saying following that first year there's a lot of lessons that came out Thank you, Shelley. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I hope that people take heart and listen with their heart. Yes, Huchusadan. Traditions of the heart. That's what we need more of. <laughs> so I just want to say, um, I raise my hands to all of you who are listening, who are taking the time to really think in a clear and coherent manner about the way forward and that we, we, we can pull together because the future needs us to. Thank you. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. B 
Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. Thank you for tuning in today for my conversation with Shelley Vendiola. We'll continue our theme, Tribal Communities on the Front Lines, in upcoming podcasts. You'll find Climate Changes Here on Apple Podcasts and at climatechangeshere.com.